This is the Wheelhouse Podcast. It's easily digestible. It's mostly factual. My name's Joel Sparrowborough. Kate Bates is also here. Hello, Kate Bates. Hello, Joel. And uh, we're kind of in matching hoodies. I have a maroon wheelhouse hoodie on. You've got your grey one on. Grey and bleak. Look grey at Grey and bleak. <laughs> I'm bringing out the... I would have said brand appropriate, but we can go for grey and, and well, no, bleak if moody. you like. I like a moody hoodie. A moody hoodie. A moody hoodie. I've got a moody hoodie on. Aren't they lovely? They are lovely. Uh, you know very what? comfy. They're a bit special, which mm. is a, an almost deliberate segue into what we're talking about today because it's not a, a regular edition. It's a bit of a special edition because we were talking the other week about carnage, basically, yes. as you do. You just chat about carnage and crashes and injuries there, there and comebacks. There seems to be a lot, doesn't there? Well, the word, is it a word? It, the comebacks is what we landed on. And and a remarkable amount of resilience shown in the pro peloton this year. Next minute, the conversation expanded into comebacks in cycling history and, well, and different kinds of comebacks. I mean, that's kind of the, the thing we love to do is we love to compare. And uh, over the last years, everything's been about the GOAT, you know, the greatest uh, of all time. And everybody gets a called the goat left, right and centre when they win a race. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we need something to kind of pat around that statistically. Yeah. Uh, but comebacks is like the one that you can't really rely on statistics for that one. It's more like sentiment and heart. But we were talking about doing it and then we even started getting a little bit murky, Joel, in what is a comeback? Yes. What yes. qualifies as a comeback? Well, it's such a resilient sport. It's it's so elite, so tough. Let me just say tough. And you see injuries dismissed and ignored all the time. So is a comeback, coming back from a, a frightful injury, there's been some horrendous ones, or, and, or, is a comeback doing something remarkable in a race, coming back in a race? Is, is that what we oh, yeah. needed? Or in a tour? Or is it after retirement and then coming back out? I mean, I think it can be broadly interpreted. And given this is our show, Joel, I get, I reckon we make the rules. Do what we want. Yeah. Do what so we there's going to be a bit of a mix yep. in my selections today. I'm just forewarning you. Uh, oh. I think it's good. As you said, it's a broad brush. Uh, so we're doing comebacks on the Wheelhouse yes. podcast. Thank you so much for your company. Going to go through some of the best comebacks we've seen in years gone by, as well as more recently. Kate Bates, as you said, there's different versions of a comeback. What do you want to kick us off with today? Look, I got pretty excited, I have to say. Uh, did a bit of a deep dive. Um, I'm going to throw over to you because I'm quite curious about what uh, what you found. We come from different places in the history of the sport. Okay. Um, there's a bit of a famous one, uh, Joel, that I know has captured your imagination. Yes, uh, 100%. And I was getting a bit nervous. I was always, almost going to put you first then just because I was like, oh. Can I lead the you comeback show? I, you I did. I did a live deflection and it completely <laughs> backfired. You just said, nah, nah. Fair enough. So this one really struck me uh, as as something that reads a little bit like something out of a movie. And but a, a lot of mine do today, not going to lie. So I think my criteria was like closing my eyes and visualizing. Can I see that? Big cinema. Yep, can. Yes. You definitely can when I talk about Greg LeMond, okay? The American, the first non-European rider to win the tour. He did that three times. He's a two-time world champion as well. I want to focus on 1989. Now, this is, now, we were talking about forms of comeback. This has two, two of the criteria on, if I may. This has coming back from something horrendous off the bike and coming back in the race itself. So... 
good to get off strong. So what I want to say in 1987, he'd won the tour already. He was, he was looking good. He was on top of the world. Everyone's like, what, what, what is the limit for this guy? There is none. Uh, you know what I'm going to do? He says, I'm going to go turkey shooting. I'm going get, to get together with my family. Is and, that a and thing? Th- uh, I Is guess that so. like hunting? Do they use hunting rifles to go turkey shooting? I think, well, they, they use rifles, let's just say, good enough to do some very serious damage if turned on a human, which oh, Greg Lamond very much proved. So they're in California on his uncle's ranch. I'll never understand. You hear about this in hunting accidents all the time where it's like someone mistakes a human for the game that they're hunting. Now, if you're hunting a bear or, or deer or whatever, sure, maybe. But how do you mistake a turkey for a human is my question because that's what happened. Greg Lemon oh. got shot by a hunting rifle by a companion who thought he was a turkey. <laughs> that sounds I, I a bit unlikely, It's just it? a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird. Anyway, he lost about a third of his blood. Now, his cycling career was renowned as having a big heart in a sporting sense, but it's it's said that that's actually what kind of saved him because he had this massive capacity going on down there. He got back. Uh, here we go. I, I've got a note here. A VO two a VO two max of ninety three. That's a big heart, isn't that it? Is, that's, that's a big like heart. Far lap territory. Didn't think he'd live, I mean, let alone ride. Horse, but, you know, well, yeah. Same. Well, no. The, the the far lap of the peloton yes. at the time, one hundred percent. He got he. Started riding again. He started on a stationary bike. Then he was going up and down the street. Then he was going on little excursions, 10 miles, 20 miles, etc. Eventually got back onto the circuit. Didn't do much. Came, uh, came good sort of in 1988. I think he did all right at the Giro that year. 1989 was the big one. This is the one I want to focus on. No one expected anything. Stage five of that year. Grabbed the jersey. Grabbed the yellow. And had one of the epic duels with... Uh, Laurent Fignon, how'd I go? You went well. Yeah. A French, absolute French legend who everyone had penciled in to win that tour and every other tour in history. Swapped leads repeatedly. When they were coming toward Paris, so Fignon had pulled away by 50 seconds. Final stage, I'm, I'm getting so excited. You are, I love it. Final stage, 25 kilometre time trial. Le Monde has defied everything, pipped him one by eight seconds which I believe remains closest or is the most narrow victory margin in tour history. So he's come from almost being killed by an errant buckshot. I think it's it's called buckshot to winning the tour two years later. Two years. That is remarkable, isn't it? I mean, physically that's incredible, but that's a heck of a, like, patience and belief to be able to come back from that. One can only wonder what this guy may have done if it weren't for the errant turkey spray. Because to come back and do that after that kind of injury where you're literally on death's door, lucky to survive, and to literally start again where you're riding a couple of miles, to go to winning a tour like that. It's incredible. That's why he's my lead. And I, I, I know I got a bit it's nervous. I was like, I don't know with... if I want to lead with him, but no. <laughs> it's good I to lead What with... do you think? I, I like it. Um, I'm going to counter with one that isn't quite as come back from the dead, um, but could have nearly killed him, uh, okay. this victory. Now, we're going to Italy, Joel. It's the 1956 uh, Giro d'Italia. We're in the closing stages. We're in stage 20. And uh, the race is being currently led by Fornara, and he is some 17 minutes ahead of Charlie Gaul. Charlie Gaul, 
is who we're talking about. Okay. Stage 20 starts uh, like most do, decent weather conditions. They had five very big mountains to climb on that day. Very early on into the stage, the attacks have started thick and fast. Charlie Gall is on the move. He's got with him a fella called uh, Frederico Bahamontes, who in 2013 was voted the best ever climber in the Tour de France, the Spaniard. So not too shabby. Charlie Gall from Luxembourg, 17 minutes down, starts attacking. All of a sudden, a weather system sets in, Joel. It starts snowing. It starts blizzarding. The peloton is all over, spread out all over the course. They don't cancel the stage, but a whole heap of the riders take refuge in farmhouses, uh, in patisseries along the way, like you name it. People are pulling over. Just re- uh, wherever they can, just random places. Yes. Just, in okay. fact, his uh, biggest competitor, Bahamontes, he goes into a farmhouse, takes his warm, his uh, cold kit off, borrows the people's pyjamas oh, and wow. hangs out, right? So this is what we are talking about. Yeah. They are throwing caution to the wind. Nobody is trudging through this. Yep. Charlie Gould does. He keeps riding to the point where they think that they've lost him because all of the other riders are accounted for. They've gotten in cars. They're trudging their way up. Charlie Gall, 20-minute advantage. He pulls over at a rest stop. His team finds him, changes his kit, has a hot chocolate, warms his hands on up, gets back out on the road. Victory on top of Montbadon. Takes the yellow jer- uh, the pink jersey, pardon me, we're, we're in... Uh, Italy, yep. not in France. He takes the leader's jersey and he wins his first Giro d'Italia. My goodness. 1956. So, uh, a different time. Let's, a different the, the time. The 50s were a different time. They were a different time. Is there any kind of, I wonder if it's like you race directors, if there's a point where it's like, no, 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 just please, we don't want frostbitten Peloton. Can no. you just come back and just chill out? Like, well, I think it was a different time. They, yeah. did, they did let the race continue and, and an epic story. Now, there is a little bit of controversy, but... Uh, I feel as though Charlie Gall is one of the greatest that we don't know about, Yeah, uh, not widely heralded, uh, but he won 10 Tour de France stages, um, two Giro d'Italias. He won the Tour de France. He won the KOM uh, at both the Tour de France and at the Giro. One of the best climbers the world has ever seen, this guy. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Uh, but he was also known to be like so horribly stubborn and aggressive and rude that he didn't have a lot of <laughs> friends in the peloton. Okay. And posthumously, Bahamontes, who was his great rival, uh, claimed that in fact he'd cheated on that day. <gasps> he'd gotten in a car no. and then gotten out and swindled everybody. But... Charlie Gall, he passed away before then. Oh, we'll never know. So we'll never know. So, okay. Oh, my goodness. So this, I, I'm just, I said movie before. This is like <laughs> it's a, a good movie, this isn't This is it? a video game. A movie, this is like a multimedia. This is, is everything. I yeah. can't believe that. So you, yeah. allegations of getting in a car in the middle of a blizzard, no one knows because no one could see three feet in front of them. All the other riders were taking shelter. <laughs> but for, look, for, for what it's worth, Bahamontes, the story he tells is that he was in a farmhouse in these people's pyjamas. Chilling out in the PJs. Chilling out in the yeah. PJs. But there was another account from a local um, who said that they found him crying in a ditch and helped him. So Mr. Bahamontes tells, you know, a pretty tough story, but perhaps he was actually crying in a ditch. I, I think that we'll just <laughs> leave that one to the storytellers, hey? What happens in the blizzard? 
Stays, stays in the blizzard. That is an extraordinary story. So there story. you go. Back from 1956. Can you see why I wanted you to start now? That is such oh, a good story. Well, not quite a turkey shot. Not quite getting <laughs> shot by a turkey <laughs> rifle. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right, where are we going next? Okay, Wheelhouse Podcast. This is our greatest comeback special edition. My name's Joel Sprebro, joined by Kate Bates. Now, I've been talking about comebacks worthy of movies, TV. This one literally is and has been. There have been docos and movies made about it. Gentleman by the name of Gino Bartali. Now, I'm going back. I'm going back a little bit further this time. He was born in 1914. A, a poor Tuscan who went on to become the most famous Italian cyclist before the Second World War. He uh, he won the Giro three times altogether, two T- TDFs. This is what I want to talk about because his two victories in France were actually 10 years apart. So in 38 and 48, and I'm pretty sure that is an unmatched feat because it's extraordinary. Obviously, the big reason for that was a little event um, by the name of World War II broke out in 39. So when that happened, he'd won in 38. Italy didn't send any riders in 39. And obviously, the Mussolini regime was uh, quite sympathetic to the Nazi regime. Bartali was a outspoken opponent of Mussolini, uh, but at the same time, he was the most famous cyclist in Italy. So when he won in 38, Mussolini actually used that as propaganda to say, this is really twisted, but look at Italy is capable of producing someone like that. Clearly master race potential. Here we go. Oh, heavens. Proper, proper like war propaganda guy. He didn't like it, Bartali, at all. So when war broke out, he became a member of the resistance. Now, when you when you talk about resistance and those kind of activities, you always think covert, hiding, sleight of mm. hand. How did he do it, Kate Bates? As a champion cyclist, reigning Tour de France winner, he just went out in his full cycling kit. And he, under the guise of doing training rides, wearing his champion's jerseys, would ca- carry letters, fake uh, IDs, passports, all of these sort of things, information to help Jews that were being chased, prosecuted at the time. He was a member of a, it's called Delasem. It's a delegation for the assistance of Jewish emigrants. It was a big resistance operation that actually started in Israel, had had a network all across Europe. He was basically this bike messenger who also used his fame to rescue, rescue people. Nazis knew very much what was going on. The, the whisper is that because he was so famous in Italy, they didn't want to risk arresting him for, for fear of what that might cause. So he was conducting these activities, basically staring them down, playing chicken with them, riding on his bike, wearing wearing his kit, delivering messages and saving people. Now, a lot of this didn't come out until after he died. He died, I think, in 2000. In 2010, it emerged that this absolute hero was also hiding a Jewish family in his basement of his house. Wow. And one of the family members went on to survive and told this story 50 odd years later and said that him doing that saved their lives. Wow. And the Nazis would would do their routine checks in that but would never come in. Again, because of his fame and status, they were afraid to do it. Anyway. And they hid that for 60 years 60 until that came years. out. Wow. And as I say, the, the fascist police, German troops in the occupied zones, they, they didn't want to risk sparking discontent by probing too far into this guy who's doing these training rides wow. in the middle of the war. Remarkable, and isn't he's like, it? And he's like, what are you training for? Because there's a war on. But no, did it. 
assisting them. He went on. This is the big one. So the war finished. Three years later, he came back and won the Tour de France again, 10 years after his previous. Now, I said they made a movie about these exploits. It's, it's called My Italian Secret. It's, a, it's about him and a number of other prominent Italians that work to undermine the Nazis and wow. use their profile and their status to do it, but somehow managed to remain largely in secret. It that is, is an extraordinary story. I have not seen that movie. I've, I'll be looking that one up now, Joel. Yeah, yeah. well, that's my number two, Kate Bates, on the oh, Real House podcast. Geez, you, that's a hard one to beat, Joel. I mean, I think that that is a remarkable human story. It's barely it? about the bike, isn't it? Well, it needs to be made. Like, this is a, a doco. It needs to be it made is. into a proper. Look, you know I love my nicknames too. Yes. What have we got for uh, Gino? Ginatashio. Ginatashio. <laughs> Isn't I that like the best that. nickname you've ever heard? <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, you've had some shockers. So that's like a step that's up. That's like I would a say. one. But he never spoke about it. He never spoke about his wartime activities. Uh, and, and as I said, Incredible. it only details emerged after his death. And it's an extraordinary story. Well, I thought that I was going to. Uh, from this episode, get all the info I needed. But I think now I want to do a deep dive. I want to see that movie. Mm. All right. Well, look, I'll I'll go next, Joel. And we're heading, uh, it's modern day. We're heading over to the Isle of Man, to Douglas, which is the hometown of Mark Cavendish. The Cav. The Cav. Look, it's not quite wartime, but I've, I think throughout his career. He's always he's, fighting battles, he's isn't he? felt as though he's had to uh, fight some battles. Uh now, Mark Cavendish, very talented young man, started on a BMX. He turned pro uh, in 2007, um, which with the T-Mobile team uh, back then. I was in the team as well. I remember seeing him walk into the food hall and uh, thinking he was a bit of an upstart with some attitude. By this time, he'd already won a couple of gold medals on the track in the Madison, so he yep. was a very handy track rider. Uh, but the pro teams, it hadn't gone unnoticed. He went on then, in the first six years of his professional career, he won, and I, I wrote this down, and then I recounted it, Joel, because it seemed insane, 25 stages of the Tour de France in his first six years as a professional. In his second six years as a professional, he won five stages wow, okay. compared to 25. Yeah. Four of those were last year in one yep. go. Yeah. And that gaping hole in the middle is where the comeback comes into it. Okay. So in 2012, uh, he was riding for High Road, Columbia, the iteration of that at the time, and they went bust and decided not to move forward. So he then moved to Sky for a year. He then went to Quick Step. But a very big thing happened in that time, and that was that he and his very trusted, famed uh, lead-out man who contributed to so many of those 25 victories – Mark Renshaw, they went separate ways at this point. They weren't able, uh, with the late season news, they weren't able to get a contract on the same team. And so they went in different directions. They didn't get reunited uh, until 2014. So we saw them come back together and we thought, finally for Cav, yeah. he's got his lead out back. And it was more than just a team lead out. They were best of mates and Renshaw, a couple of years older, gave him a lot of comfort, yep. helped him, okay. kept him quite calm. You know, sprinters, we talk about how they're so full of confidence, but Cav has a vulnerable side and Renshaw really helped him with that. His rock. 
his rock. Yeah. So they were reunited and we expected some pretty big things. But then Cav got Epstein-Barr virus, uh, which, you know, we sometimes call glandular fever. Uh, it's a little bit of a mix with chronic fatigue. It's debilitating. Yeah. He struggled with that, had a few little races, missed the tour, came back, got it again, Joel. At this point, he just shrugged into uh, what was later diagnosed as um, major depressive disorder, so clinical depression, just wasn't coping. Unfortunately, this coincided with Mark Renshaw retiring in 2019, and Cav found himself depressed on his own, in a team where he didn't really have anybody to trust because at the end of 2019, Team Dimension Data uh, also stopped operating. Okay. And so he had to find a new team yet again, but this time without Mark Renshaw, this time off the back of a drought at any major races. Uh, And he also had this illness that was plaguing him. So it's not a good condition for poor Cav. No. So he gets rescued by Rod Ellingworth over at uh, Bahrain Merida. He'd uh-huh. worked with him on the track before. So he thought, I'm in good hands here. But they, it just didn't work. Yeah, sure. They sure. wanted it to. It sounded quite romantic when he went there, but it just didn't work. They didn't take him to the tour. And at Ghent Wavelgum, uh, at the end of that year, when he got off the bike, he finished in 74th position. So not a day to write home about. And the interviewer asked him, he said, you look a bit upset. You look like it was a hard day out there. And Joel, he got emotional. He started crying and he said, I think that might be my last race. Oh, wow. Because at this point he didn't have a new contract. Yeah. Nobody wanted to sign him. Bahrain had said that they'd help him find another team, but they didn't want to keep him. Can you imagine? Like that? it's not very compatible with a rider who does suffer with depression and anxiety and has had such a long, hard haul. And so ultimately it, it took the cycling world completely by surprise to hear him say that and to see him so emotional. So his old boss back at Quickstep, Patrick Lefebvre, who everybody has a lot of criticism for, but on this occasion, he came in to rescue Cav and he said publicly, I don't know if Cav is capable anymore. But he is a champion and he does not deserve his career to end without a contract in this way. Sure. So essentially, Mark Cavendish, the story goes that he found his own funding and Quickstep took him on. Yeah. He gained the confidence from that, from that respect. And he stormed back at the 2021 Tour de France and he won four stages, equaling the all-time record uh, for stage wins from Eddie Merckx. Right, our very own producer, yeah, Merckx. Yeah, Merckx yeah. at 34 stages. Wow. Remarkable. I, can I just say, like, as you know, that, that was my intro. Watching him perform in that tour in 21 and seeing the emotion that, that came out, especially when he mm. equaled that record, has just been given a jolt of context. Yes. Because to have been that close to being lost to the sport forever, because you can tell... Mm. I don't know Cav um, as well as you do. Like I've rung him a hundred times, say, come on the wheelhouse. He screens <laughs> my calls. We're, we're working <laughs> out. But he's a pr- you can tell he's a proud guy. He's an emotional guy. So to be at those crossroads and to say that in an interview, to just go, I'm, mm. I'm that emotional and I'm that out of, I'm, I'm just not in control at the moment. Blech, I'm done. I'm cooked. Mm. 
to then come back the way he has and and continues to, to be fair. Yeah, he won at the Giro stage, still winning uh, stages of Grand Tours. Yeah. Now, they didn't take him to the Tour de France in 2022, which, you know, was a little bit confusing for everybody at the time. Yeah. Um, but they, they had to understand what was behind that. But just a remarkable comeback to the sport. Like the, the first six... Um, years of his tour, he was winning six stages at a time, four, five. And then he just went through this massive drought yeah. where it was not even getting selected for the team, let alone winning one stage. There are very few people who could have conceived that he could win four at that point in his career where he's 36 years of age and only led on the team mm-hmm. by someone who didn't want to see his reputation uh, go that way. So look, I just think that's remarkable. I'm, it's a, it's a very, <laughs> it's, spo- it's a very sporting one, isn't it? it uh, look, it truly is. And it's, it is a, it's a contemporary one that we've all watched him do brilliant things, but to, to be on the brink like that. And I have to say of all the anti-heroes, the, Lefebvre to be the one to come out and give him that public jolt. That really took me by surprise. I was like, uh, it, no, he's not usually mm. doing it, that kind of the, thing. It's the one thing that prevents me from putting Lefebvre on the very top of my cycling <laughs> villains list, which by the yeah. way, I think there's an episode, cycling villains. Oh, there definitely Oof. is. All there right. Definitely Watch is. out for uh, that Let one. us know on uh, your favorite cycling villains, heroes, comeback kings yes. and queens. Uh, <laughs> this is the Wheelhouse Podcast. So far, we've spoken about someone who got shot by a hunting rifle, went on to win a tour, a guy that defied the Nazis uh, and delivered messages and documents to the Italian resistance, wearing his cycling kit with his name on it. I forgot to mention that as well about Bartali. Bartali on the back, just in case there's any confusion of who is riding across Tuscany, Assisi, all those places. Anyway. We've been through Italian blizzards. Blizzards with Charlie. We've been to the desert in Bahrain with Mark Cavendish for a comeback. Where are we going now? One of the more controversial. Did you get in a car to win that race? We'll never know. We'll never know. That's fantastic, Charlie Gore. Moving on, I thought it would be remiss not to have one of your mates. um, And this is a very worthwhile entry. So this is very much in the criteria of coming back from crippling career threatening somehow not career ending injuries i'm talking about Arnemiek von vloten you, yeah your mate you know avp she uh, she deserves a spot on this list oh. even though she's still active in the sport you know i feel as though some of our other ones have been historic but she's remarkable still doing amazing things and i'm going to do the doco in this there's a blockbuster movie <laughs> there's definitely, definitely a doco is. so 20 2022 alone uh she, Wins in Italy, Spain, and France, as you do. And that, that's sort of par for the course when you're talking GOAT, when you're talking this sort of writer. When she came onto the scene, you'll know more about this, was 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 solid without being necessarily, you know, destined for greatness, I guess would be how you Yeah, say she it. was. She was – I was racing with her at the time and she was there and thereabouts, but uh, never really at the pointy end. Yeah. Um, and making everybody suffer a lot. Uh, but then it came <laughs> yeah. out that she was having some troubles with her iliac femoral artery and was riding essentially with one leg uh, because the other wasn't receiving much blood flow. Yeah. So she got that fixed. And the rest is here history. we are. Oh, well, you're absolutely right. Iliac femoral artery surgery suddenly, as you say, has the power of two legs. That's when the goat status crept in. That's when everyone started going, oh, no, AVVs, we're, we're all in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That was my That's attempt what everyone at a goat started noise, doing. but anyway. What, hang on, just sorry. What did everyone start doing? 
Is that, is that remotely goat-like? It's very goat-like. I like anyway. it. So AVV, like, she arrived after that surgery. The victories began. So did the injuries. This this first one I want to talk about, it's a training crash in Italy in 2015. She's hit by a car. Okay, she's hit by a car. She suffers multiple fractures, a collapsed lung, broken collarbone, three broken ribs. She's out for over three months. She's out for 20 weeks thereabouts. Comes back 2016, a year later, breaks three vertebrae at the Rio Olympics. Now, this one, I want to zero in on this one quickly because of all the people who were there that day, you were among them. You were You were there. Yeah, I remember this um, one. This stands out as a particularly grisly one, I think. Yeah, she was leading. She was in the gold medal position and uh, she fell on a on a corner. It, the descent came through uh, before, you know, a nice flat finish uh, into on the beaches uh, in Rio. But it came down through this forest and because of how damp and moist the forest was, the road was never completely dry. Okay. And I remember doing a course drive around and thinking, oh, they'd want to be careful through here. And she just slid out on the wet and it was one of the most horrific falls I've ever seen, Joel. And she was knocked out. She wasn't moving. And I was in the, um, in the press center and, uh, waiting to go down to the mix zone. And I, I still remember sitting here today, how I felt in that moment. And there were quite a few of us who hadn't been retired for too long, who knew her personally, who we, we there were no words. We were just mm. watching the screen, waiting to see movement. And we didn't oh, no. because they kept, they were going to see that like they were framing her, but then they were going back to the action in the race. It was, it was horrible. And what does it do? What did it do to you guys? Like what? Oh, you know, I think it makes me jumpy. Unfortunately, yeah. I've seen a lot of my uh, colleagues in in quite nasty accidents, and it sounds almost uh, a bit standoffish. But as soon as they move, I feel good. I'm like, nah, they're fine. And they're like, they've got seven broken bones. I'm like, yeah, but they're moving. Yeah, but they're moving. <laughs> yeah. So she's up on the so, big screen. Yeah. Motionless. So it yes, and the the Dutch contingent there, of course, were. Um, you know, pale as a ghost. And mm. um, when she, we knew that she was all right and by all right, she was breathing, talking, moving her limbs, sheer relief. But it would, it would, I do wonder how it is for her because she didn't watch the fall for a long time. Yeah. Okay. And then after, until after she'd had a significant rehab because she had three broken vertebra, the concussion, uh, and when she was in hospital, she, after that, then watched it and said that, gee, now I realize why everybody has been treating me with kid gloves. I, I realize everybody's reaction now, yeah. because now that I've seen that footage, um, it's quite confronting. Well, so I remember that one well. Yeah. It's a, well, a horrific crash. The injury, injury list speaks for itself. We saw Commonwealth Games 2022, some horrific crashes there as well and you, you just the oxygen seems to be sucked out of the place well it doesn't um, and unfortunately for Anamik though that's that's not it that's not it that's no, she not went it. On, got back on the bike as you do when you're the goat 2018 unarguably uh, up there with uh, as nasty a crash she's uh, broken her tibial tibial plateau which is essentially a fractured kneecap so she's crashed in the worlds with 96 kilometers to go got back on the bike as you do when you're the goat Finishes seventh, like still still rides on. Uh, 
and uh, Van der Breggen won it. Her countrywoman won it. So she's all like, I'm happy for her. But, uh, you know, at the same time, fractured kneecap. The next year, oh, sorry, 2020, two years later, fractures her wrist in Italy. 2021 fractures her pelvis and scapula in Paris-Roubaix. 2022, another fractured wrist in a training crash. Yet, we're talking about her as the GOAT. And of course, Joel, she just won the World Championships in Wollongong. And with a broken elbow, she is just incredible. Definitely come back. You've chosen a very good one there, Joel. Well, I think I'm on board. You're not just, you're not just like going in with a level of fitness and starting to add to it. You're literally starting from scratch. As you said, training yourself to walk again, then ride then get to that elite level, then win at that elite level, she's the GOAT. It's Well, let me just throw one more out before, because I feel like we're going to need some special mentions. Okay. But there was one more that really stood out to me uh, from the women's field. And I feel also as though there's not as much depth in the history of the women's field. We don't have many stories from uh, the 40s, 50s whatever, but we've got some pretty impressive modern-day warriors. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> uh, with them floating. But Kristen Armstrong is the one that I'm going to round off um, this with. American from uh, Boise, Idaho, fantastic woman. She won the gold medal in 2008 in the individual time trial. Won it very easily, I okay. might add. She then retired, uh, said it's been a wonderful journey, but I'm not retiring because I don't love it. I'm retiring because... I'm getting a bit older. She was 35 at the time. I want to have kids. I want a family. So she went on to have a beautiful little boy, Lucas. And uh, we all thought, wonderful, Kristen Armstrong will go down in the history books. She wasn't done. In 2011, she decided that she wanted to have a tilt um, at the 2012 Games in London. So out of nowhere, uh, lines up, wins the national championship, the American national championship. And... uh, Qualifies for the Olympics, wins another gold medal in 2012. In doing so, she was the oldest ever female uh, cyclist to win a medal of any colour, let alone a gold medal. Again, history making. She says, thank you, goodbye to the sport. Uh, We think, again, she's someone for for the history books. No. (laughs) (laughs) In 2015, she does it again. 18 months out from the Olympics... This was a bit of a controversial one because she told uh, the USA Cycling Federation that she wanted to have a comeback. So they picked her in the team uh, for the Pan American Games in order to qualify uh, for the Olympics and qualify a time trial spot. That wasn't really kosher given that there were so many athletes who were performing at the time for USA Cycling to give someone in retirement the spot. So it got appealed and it got overturned, so she couldn't do that. Uh, And I might also add, she wasn't doing world tour races. She wasn't racing internationally at all. Uh, But she came out and in true Kristen Armstrong style, she won the national championships. She qualified for the Olympics. Joel, she won the gold medal in Rio as well. Wow. It makes her the only one that's won three road time trials in a row. The oldest uh, cyclist to ever get a medal at 43. Third gold medal, once again in the history books. I can confirm she hasn't made any more comebacks. <laughs> as, as yet. Like two retirements yeah. between Olympic gold medals. Yeah. And I just think phenomenal. For her to say, I love the sport, but, you know, I want to go and have a family and, and to choose that I've got my Olympic gold medal. And then to go, actually, you know what, bugger it. I want another crack. And then again, I just think it's 
incredible. So she's sort of she's breaking her own age record yes, along the way. So exactly. Like you're just, yeah, just you're remarkable. redefining and you're setting the boundaries. Yeah, I mean, wow. and it wasn't only the fact that she won three on the trot. It was the way she did it, the methodology, the yep. f- sharp focus on it. Like really a very good lesson, I think, to anybody in um, really honing in on one thing. Yeah. She, she wasn't in the world tour. She wasn't doing it like all of her uh, competitors were, and it worked. That's so Even that go. in itself is so fascinating, though, to not be in touch with that that, that tour circuit and the form that everyone else, all of oh, that. It like takes, It takes confidence. You, well, That's yeah, how do you measure takes. yourself, you well, know? Yeah, again, it's like blind faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm impressed with Did you have much faith. to do with her? I did over the years, yeah. yeah. I, I raced a bit in America, and when she was uh, prior to the first retirement, uh, when she was racing in Europe, and and look, everybody knew her for her incredible work ethic. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think, even though she'd retired twice, every time we knew she was coming back, you could kind of guess where that was going. Never write off a champion. Never. Never on that note. Never write off a champion. On honorable mentions are in the comeback special of the Wheelhouse podcast. I I, I think I had a little. A, a little gleam in the eye when Egan Bernal uh, made a, a, a ridiculous comeback in 2022. Now there was he he he's he's ploughed into a stationary bus, and this struck a chord for me because I almost hit a bus as I told you after being mm. swooped by a magpie. Uh, so I was like, yeah, even though I didn't emerge with you know not almost not being able to walk again, there was mm. a certain degree of solidarity because those buses are nasty business. But this guy. All jokes aside, what a phenomenal effort to make it back. Mm. He did it in January. He was back racing, I think. I might be wrong here, but by like July? Yeah, be- yeah, August, beginning it of August. It was August? Yeah, they, they announced in July. This is a good mention, Joel. I'm oh. very supportive of this. I do remember following it very closely uh, when it happened. And one of the quotes from one of the Colombian um, journos, cycling journos, because the problem is a lot of info was coming out um, in Spanish and that, you know, then trying to be translated and yeah. the internet is helpful, but on such matters, you don't want Google Translate to be inaccurate, right? Yeah. Anyway, this guy kind of clarified it, spoke to the doctors and said, um, we understand that at this point, they're not talking about cycling at all. They're talking about make sure he has any quality of life. Wow. That's where it started. So just imagine that to be racing Less than eight months later. Yeah. And everything that goes in between, that in itself, is just phenomenal. So Getting, getting back on pick. and doing it. Yeah. I, look, I, I always- on fire today. I, I always, I just admire, he's got, he's a, such a tenacious character. I remember that, again, that early tour, my early tour, 21, and he, there were times when he was really struggling and always found a way. Always found a way. It's like you were talking about Cav before. I remember him getting over the Pyrenees and basically being carried over by his team. You had a good first year at the Tour de France, I've got to say. Like in terms it was a ripper. Of... <laughs> yeah, as far as winning someone over for life. Exactly. Uh... <laughs> well, and, and I'm happy that you uh, entered the cycling scene in that era, Joel, because it means that you um, got the Valverde. He's oh, my next honourable mention. Uh, he's one of the greatest classic riders we have. Uh 42 is the age he decided was enough. What, 40 wasn't enough? 
Heavens, I mean, I got out of bed at 40 and I, I sound like a creaky old uh, door frame. But I was anyway. asking you not long ago on this podcast, is, is 30, 35, we getting a bit uh, getting a bit rough around the edges then by that age? Well, not, not, not if you're Valverde. Now, in 2017 at the Tour de France, uh, he was 37 years of age and he had a terrible crash. It was in Dusseldorf, super treacherous conditions. It started uh, as just... A little bit of rain, but the roads uh, were very slippery. He slid out and he hit a barrier, one of those old school road metal barriers. You know, okay, we've all yep. seen them on the highway. And uh, in doing so, he shattered his kneecap, oh. uh, but he also had two giant lacerations uh, from the very sharp edge of that, uh, lost a lot of blood. When they took him into an emergency surgery, they again were like, let's not talk about cycling. He'll be, he'll live, yeah. but this is going to be a very Don't even long think rehab. Don't even bike, think yeah. about it. Now, also remembering he's 37. So rehabbing is one thing when you're 25. 37, shattered patella. That's one of the hard ones to come back from. Fast forward, 2018, world champion. Wow. Thank you. Resplendent. Look at him in the uh in the rainbow. <laughs> the rainbow fits it suits him well. It, yes. It's, uh, the and, tri- there's so much to that triumph, isn't and there? There were many times in his career where there was a, this big period, Joel, where Spain stuffed up the world championships. So they would have the best riders and they would not win. They would get second or third and with different riders. And they would get so emotional about it that there were tears on podiums. And some of the most emotive interviews I have ever seen have been from the Spanish national team when they've stuffed up the world championships. Yeah, okay. So it meant a lot for Valverde to win, not just for him but for Spain, to do it at 38 years of age after a career, what could have been a career-ending crash 13 months earlier, yep. I just think that's one of the all-time resilience. Jeez, he's, oh, he's a great in- determined he's a, and motivated. A fantastic inclusion. And as you said, 42 years old. Like To do that at 38 and say, you know what, I might just tack another oh, four years on here. Um, I know. And we're not talking tiddlywinks. We're not talking about a little... Tiddlywinks, <laughs> stat- We're talking about a proper plough into a, a, a steel barrier designed to stop cars from going over... <laughs> the, Ex- yeah, exactly. ...and trucks. So, exactly. like, a proper, proper crash. And on that note, I might... Wind us up today on the comebacks special. And I feel like we've we've delved into the comebacks and the different interpretations of mm. comeback. Well, I've got one more. Chloe Dygert. Now, not 2019, she's the uh, world time trial championship, world champion, sorry, world at her feet, beating the likes of AWV, your mate. Um, 2020, in Mola, the world championship, she's had a similar incident. She's crashed into a barrier at high speed, descending... Almost lost a leg. She's cut her leg so badly that they were, oh, should we, you know, like a proper Mm. toss of a coin to retain the leg. Not only does she keep the leg, (laughs) she learns to use it again to the extent where she goes to the Tokyo Olympics and wins a bronze medal in the team's pursuit. I'm just, I'm sitting here. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? My favorite part is her quote. So after, this is after she's in. Well, she's an like, interesting character. So resilience and everything aside, um, she usually comes out with some curious things. What yes, is this one, she's, Look, I, I should qualify. She's got like, some controversial uh, associations in the past. We won't go into that here. This is purely on the bike coming back. I didn't think I was winning by enough 
and I was pushing the limits, I'd do it again. Oh, yes, going too fast. Yeah. Hairy corner. Yep. I remember it. Yeah. I, I don't ever remember hearing that quote, which is so Chloe Diet. Like that's, I'd do it again, yeah, Kate Bates. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it, again, the barrier. With the, you know, hitting the barrier. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Incredible. Such, uh, look. Incredible I've, I've, to have her back. Like, yeah, to to come past that and through that. Yeah. It's Emphatically. And too, say, oh, I would do it again. I'll do it again. I'll take it on. <laughs> I will take that barrier on any day of the week. And, and That uh, is all sorts of tough. All the riders we've covered today have shown so well. Resilience, courage, often defying fascist regimes uh, in some cases, maybe or maybe not riding through blizzards. We'll never know. (laughs) Look, just before we go, I just want to throw a last one in, Joel. Okay, go on. Because there's been a lot of blood and war and, you know, a bit of depression. Like, there's been some incredible comebacks. Yeah. Um, So I just wanted to have a little bit of fun with this one. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have seen this either because this is back from 2010, uh, we're talking about Jens Voigt. Now, he is one of the considered one of the toughest men in cycling. Uh, he's the one who very famously says, shut up legs uh, whenever he's hurting <laughs> out yeah. on the bike. Um, now, <laughs> this is uh, in 2010, and it was on stage 16 um, of the Tour de France. He was uh, one of the domestiques. He did a whole lot of work in the first half going up the Col de Perisord, did his job, uh, Dropped off a little bit, not paying attention, stacked on the way down. But by this point, he's so far behind that he doesn't even have a team car behind him, writes off his bike completely, wants to still finish the race. No bike, no team car. Behind the t- behind the race, I'm laughing because it's so funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> behind the race uh, is a car for kids, like kids who are doing parts of the course and enjoying the Tour de France and whatnot uh, from a local cycling club. He gets one of their bikes. He borrows a bike off a kid. He borrows a bike off a kid. Now, he's a six-foot-plus gentleman, and he's on a kid's bike. Um, If you see any imagery of it, uh, Joel, and if you're listening along, you you have to take a look um, either at our socials or at the YouTube of this because it's hilarious. He's on this little yellow bike. Yeah. Anyway, he got 15 kilometres down the road before the police intervened and helped him, <laughs> went up to the team car, got him a bike, stood on the side of the road and waited for him with said bike. Uh, so I wonder if the kid finish. got their bike back. I believe they did. When you said the police intervened, I, was, I thought you meant like, excuse me, sir, we got, you're under arrest no. for stealing a bike. <laughs> uh, yes. No, no, no. To get him back on a normal bike because wow. it looked like uh, such a comedic thing. So I, at least we can finish on a, uh, a lighter oh, yeah. note. <laughs> That's a ripper. That's an absolute ripping story to, to round out. I, yes. I think a very successful special edition of the Wheelhouse Podcast, Greatest Ever Comebacks. I love it. We've got plenty in there. There's plenty more, though. We I've could got do a, a documentary to watch now, too. You do. You do. On yes. that well, we'd love your feedback. So if anybody thinks we've missed anybody, uh, load us up with suggestions because uh, there could always be a V2 through V10. Who knows, Joel? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Who knows? It does dish them up from uh, stolen bikes of children to riding through blizzards, sleeping in, stealing pyjamas as well. A bit of theft. I've noticed a little bit of a theme of theft on the side <laughs> A little bit, too. yes. I don't know if the pyjamas were ever returned. So okay. I know the bike was, not the pyjamas. Okay. <laughs> a war hero who never said anything until after he died. A guy who got shot by a hunting rifle and came back. It's been fun. AVV, I think. I, I, I have to say, despite all of them, AVV and Bartali for me, hard to top 
ABV's list of injuries and coming back the way she <laughs> continues to. Is yes. Well, and I feel as though if we do a cycling villains, um, that Charlie Gore may may well end up on there too, based on uh, the comments made by other athletes about his demeanour and his character. You know, but we're definitely doing villains. It has we to have happen. to now. Absolutely has I know. To. Suggestions the, for that too. Yeah, throw them in. Throw them in. Uh, follow along. Like, share. Send it around. This is the Wheelhouse Podcast. Easily digestible. Mostly factual. My name's Joel Sprepper. Kate Bates is here as well. We'll see you next time. We'll come back. We'll, we'll come do it back. again. <laughs> the Wheelhouse is produced by River City Studios for Listener. Executive produced by Luke Mears and the mysterious Merksy. It's written and hosted by Kate Bates and me, Joel Spreadbar.